Father, again, we thank you so much uh, for your loving kindness. We thank you so much uh, for an opportunity to worship you today. Uh, we ask you, Lord God, that you would just point us to you, point us to Jesus Christ. And again, Lord God, uh, at the same time, we ask you that you would help us to put all those things uh, behind us, uh, beside us, Lord God, that are in the way of us worshiping you in this place, Lord. Uh, so, Father, uh, again, we give you our hearts and our minds, Lord God, and we pray uh, that your spirit would just illuminate this word before us. We worship you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yesterday I was at uh, a place that buy and sell artifacts. This is pretty interesting. Uh, they, they call them artifacts, but they're not necessarily what I consider to be artifacts. Uh, I don't know. They, some of them seem to cost as much as artifacts, but nevertheless, they are what they are. It was interesting, uh, and in this, uh, in this place, uh, he has pieces from all over the world. There was this lamp. Uh, a lamp looked something like this. It you know, cost about $6,000, and we're talking about one. Uh, they had some griffins, uh, some of those things that you see on top of buildings that have been uh, foraged in concrete. And somehow, in the, at the demolition of the building, they take those things out, and then they set them, and they decide to sell them. And they cost $22,000 each. And uh, I asked the guy, I said, well, who's buying this kind of stuff? He said, well, people are buying it. I'm like, really? A mirror, probably about the size of my Bible, costing $800? Whoever this curator was of this place that one of the things he said that he would do he would travel the world and if he saw anything that was interesting anything that was interesting that he would buy it and then bring it back to Chicago and then sell it elsewhere one of the things I uh, was going through my mind was what does it take for one of those pieces to be unique enough for me to spend $28,000 on it. What is it? Is it something special about it that I can't see? There was another light fixture, uh, probably uh, with a bunch of sticks. It looked like uh, the universe or something. And I looked at it. It was all pitted. It was looking all old. It looks like nothing to me. Uh, again, we're talking about almost $10,000. Somehow, this guy, I mean, it looked like in here. But somehow, this guy, he thought there was value to that. He could look at that and see how unique it was. And this is something of what we're going to talk about, what we're going to hear about today. Really, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And what sets him apart from everyone else in the world, right? Because there are plenty of people talking all kind of smack, that's what we call it, right? Saying that uh, you need to worship this, you need to worship that, you need to be here, you need to read that. But at the end of the day, asking ourselves the question, does it come up short, So during this season, it's very interesting. It is an increasing, uh, we have an increasing sense 
that other faith traditions are just as important as the next. Remember the, uh, many of the stores moving away from a Merry Christmas to Happy Holidays. In fact, I heard last that uh, our, 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 our president is bringing Merry Christmas back. Wow, I'm like, really? That's special. But we know that Christmas has never gone anywhere. We know that we were free to say Christmas as much and as long as we want to. But yet in our society, it is inundated with thought processes and religious ideas and belief that runs counter to Jesus Christ. So God wants our hearts to be clearly drawn to him without confusion and without misunderstanding. So would you turn with me to Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. Here we see that Jesus uniquely enters into his glory. Jesus uniquely enters into his glory. Verse 28. Now about eight days after these, after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So Jesus uh, took Peter, John, and James up uh, to the mountain to pray. And I wonder if Jesus was expecting them to pray, or did he just need someone just to walk alongside of him while he went up to the mountain? But we know that Jesus was always modeling, modeling what it meant to be spiritual, amen? Uh, that Jesus didn't do anything by accident, that he was very purposeful in all the things that he did. So here, Jesus, he went up uh, on the mountain to pray, and demonstrating what prayer was. Uh, we uh, prayed and recited earlier the Lord's Prayer. When the disciples uh, told Jesus that, uh, can you teach us how to pray? And they said, and Jesus responded to them, this is the way you pray. Don't pray like the hypocrites, but our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But as Jesus was praying, we read that the appearance of his face changed and his clothing became dazzling white. Dazzling white. Now, one uh, translation says that uh, it was brilliant white. Uh, another says it was bright as a flash of lightning. Another one says that his face was gleaming. We understand this to mean that uh, a divine manifestation was on Jesus as he prayed. Something supernatural, it was not only supernatural, but it was also 
visible, uh, these two things happened to Jesus, and uh, they were able to see this. Verses 28 and 29 gives us the context for what was about to happen. But while seeing uh, the glory of Jesus is important, it is important to a degree, it is not the focus of God's message. Amen? I'll say it again. While seeing the glory surrounding Jesus is significant enough for us to take notice, it is not the focus here. You know, this can be the stumbling block for some folks. Because some people, uh, when they read a scripture in a passage like that, that uh, they are only enamored with the supernatural. They can't see anything else. All they can see is Jesus glowing like a light bulb. And they begin to wonder themselves, well, how can I glow like Jesus? How long do I need to pray before a light sizzles across my body like lightning? So then uh, the focus for them, uh, not for us, is that they want to learn how to glow spiritually. They want people to look at them and say, oh boy, you are certainly glowing. Next thing you know, you have preachers preaching on how to glow like Jesus. And then you have, uh, uh, you, you have all types of uh, conferences saying, this is a conference on how to glow spiritually. Yes, gentlemen, your wife may glow, but she doesn't glow uh, like Jesus. Uh, so our understanding of the passage where well, we say that uh, the manifestation, divine manifestation on Jesus, it is significant to a degree. It is not something for us to emulate. Amen? So recall the Hebrews. After seeing Moses' face glowing when he had come down from Mount Sinai. Do you remember that? After he had received the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 34. Verses 29 and 30. Here is a passage where Moses was glowing. Here's some folks constructing a theology around uh, the glow in the presence of God. Exodus 34, verses 29 and 30. Moses did not know, it says, that the skin of his face shone uh, because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses... And behold, the skin of his face shone, or as we say, that it shined. And they were afraid to come near him. Uh, so Moses had a divine fluorescent glow coming from his face. And when people saw him, they were afraid. Question is, is this something that we are supposed to emulate? And if you don't know the answer to that, I'll answer it for you. The answer is no. That our spiritual quest, again, it is not to glow like Jesus. Can you say amen? Amen. amen. So what matters, though, is that Jesus was alive. And Jesus was alive, alive Jesus, that he was talking to two men that were supposed to have been dead. Alive Jesus was supposed to have been talking to two dead men. 
says there, Luke 9, 30. And behold, uh, two men were talking with him. Who were they? They were Moses and whom? Elijah. If nothing else, this passage confirms that there is life after death. There is life after death. That's what this passage confirms to us. However, these two men, Moses and Elijah, they also have something else in common. For Moses, no one knew what happened to him. Here in second, actually that's not correct. Here in the passage it says here in 2 Kings, I'm speaking of Elijah first. Sorry about that. Elijah, 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Look at this one. This is Elijah. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separate the two of them. This is Elijah and his understudy, Elisha. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So uh, Elijah was, you know, uh, taking care of his business. Next thing you know, uh, this chariot of fire comes down. It grabs hold of Elijah, and then he's gone into heaven. So he was alive at, uh, and walking on the earth at one moment, and then the next moment, he was gone into heaven. Verse 12 says, And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. And he saw him no more. So Elijah was walking the earth, and then he was gone. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. What happened to Moses? Deuteronomy 34, 5 and 6. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Question for you, who buried Moses? You guys see that? Look at the verse, uh, verses 5 and 6. Who buried Moses? For Moses died, and no one knew what happened to him. They don't know what happened to his body. All they knew that he, he died and he was gone. These unusual situations have caused further speculation as to who the two witnesses were in the book of Revelation. I want you to turn there with me. Revelation, all the way at the end of your Bibles. Revelation chapter 11, verse 3. I'm going to skip over to verse 7 and 8 and then verse 11. And it says here, beginning in verse 3. And I will, this is God speaking, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth, verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, verse 11. But after the, uh, the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Some people believe that here, back in verse 3, uh, that these two witnesses 
will be Elijah and Moses. Some believe that. And I tell you, I don't know who they're going to be. Now back to Luke chapter 9, verse 31. So now you have Moses and Elijah. They are speaking to Jesus. Uh, but what are they speaking to Jesus about? Again, verse 31 says, uh, Who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Scripture tells us they spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish. And, and one of the reasons that I spent a little time talking about you know, Moses and Elijah so on and so forth, because it bears out in this scripture. Uh, Jesus' departure from where? Well, Jesus' departure from this earth. Now, now what is so significant about this? Uh, the word that we see when it says that they spoke about his departure, uh, the word in the original language, and here it is, exodus. Exodus. You see that? Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and we call that what? We call that the Exodus. So here they were speaking to Jesus about his Exodus. But so what are you saying? Well, uh, that's quite simple. If you know the word of God, and as simply as this, you know that when Jesus makes his exodus off of the earth, that what's going to happen uh, in response to his exodus off the earth, that he's going to lead a whole world full of people into freedom. So when Jesus makes his departure, when Jesus makes his exodus, that he's a lot like Moses. You get that? He's a lot like Moses in many different ways. But, but here we have this double entendre, this two-meaning thing going on, meaning that Jesus will also at his departure, not at his death, even though we know that's what happened, but at his departure, at his exodus, that he will lead us into freedom, and he will redeem us from our sins. But notice, though, that even though they spoke of Jesus' departure, that was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem, no one could say the exact day or the hour that it was to take place. So Scripture, it speaks truth concerning these future events. And we may not know all the particulars, and I want to warn you about that as well. Any uh, time someone tells you, uh, I want to give you 10 reasons why uh, the world is going to end uh, July the 1st, 2018. Here are the reasons why. And so you need to sell everything. You need to run and run fast away from them. Because scripture tells us that no man, by default, no woman, no person knows the day nor the hour to which it's going to happen. But what we know, according to Jesus, that it is going to happen. Can you say Amen. Notice, however, it was what Jesus was about to accomplish. In other words, that uh, the, the devil thought that he would uh, use the death of Jesus Christ in order to promote his agenda. You know, the devil is always busy. 
He's always telling lies. He's always telling you what you are not, what you can't do for Jesus Christ. He's always telling you how limited you are. And I want to tell you that if you're free in Jesus Christ, that the world is yours if Jesus gives it to you. Amen? So uh, the devil, he tried to concoct uh, this very elaborate scheme in order to uh, kill Jesus off so he could take over all things. But Scripture says what the devil meant for evil, that God will use it for good. Can you say amen? So if you find yourself at that uh, crux of life that you can't quite figure out how to get out of it, know that God may just use that for your good. Even though the devil tried to destroy you, the devil tried to stop you, know that God will use it for your good and you will come out more than a conqueror in him who loves you. Can you say amen? Amen. amen. And that is a fact. But of all the deliverance that Moses and Elijah accomplished, all of their combined work, that it pales in comparison to the global and lasting effects of the exodus of Jesus Christ. So knowing all of that, here's the next one, Jesus' uniqueness is oftentimes misunderstood. Jesus' uniqueness is oftentimes misunderstood. Luke chapter 9, verse 32. Now Peter, and those who were with him, were heavy with sleep. Have you ever been in a spiritual environment and you felt like going to sleep? I hope it's not while I'm preaching. Can you say amen? But been there, done that, Amen. You get in the house of God and you're so at peace and you can feel the Holy Spirit and next thing you know, that Holy Spirit closes your eyes, doesn't it? It's very easy to misunderstand a spiritual act when it is interpreted through human eyes. It's very easy to misunderstand a spiritual act when it is interpreted through uh, eyes made of flesh. As we now take a look at the disciples, we see that they were doing something other than praying, right? We saw that it was Jesus. He was the one that was praying. Uh, we saw that Jesus was the one that, that was glowing, right? We saw that Jesus was the one talking to uh, Moses and Elijah, and the disciples were, they were knocked out. Come on, you know they were knocked out. Like Jesus, you know, he just wanted to minister all the time. And every time he said, let's go to Jerusalem, he got to stop here and talk to this person. He got to stop here and heal this person and stop here. And, you know, that's just wearing me out. And then we get up here on the mountain that's nice and quiet. Up in the mountain is nice and cool because down, uh, down there in the desert, you know that it's hot. You know that it's sizzling down there. But here in the, uh, in the mountain, Jesus is just praying. And Jesus is praying so good that it just put me straight to sleep. But then they awake. They awake. And what happens when they awake? That all of a sudden, uh, 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 Peter says, I have an idea. Uh, who knows that sometimes when you come out of sleep, you can't have great ideas, amen? Sometimes our best ideas uh, come from uh, the cradle of the bed. Uh, we come out of our sleep, oh man, I have a great idea. Let me write it down right now. Let me speak it into a tape recorder. Not a tape recorder, right? Uh, your, your, your iPhone, your smartphone right now. It's a wonderful idea. 
Here Peter, he comes out of his sleep, and it says now they were basically fully awake. Hey, I have an idea. How about if we make a tent, Jesus, for you, right? Because we don't want to leave out Jesus. Can you say amen? If you're going to make a tent, you have to make a tent for Jesus. But we're going to make one for you, Jesus. And then we're going to make one for Moses. Because we heard, according to the scripture, uh, that Moses was alive, he died, God buried him, and he was no more, nobody knew what happened. So we, if we make one for Jesus, we must make one for Moses. And then, of course, here is Elijah, another hero of the faith, that he performed all these miracles. And he was living and alive, and then he was gone, and now... Oops, there he is. How can we not make a tent for Elijah? So Jesus, here's a great idea. I know I'm coming out of, uh, out of my sleep, but, uh, but I, I want to make a tent for you, Jesus, uh, for Moses and for Elijah as well. Let's read from verse uh, 32. Now Peter... Those who were with him were heavy with sleep. They were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Uh, uh, Jesus, I'm glad that we're here. Aren't you glad that we're here, Jesus? It's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then here is the kicker. Come on, what does it say there? Not what? Knowing. I didn't know what in the world he was talking about. You ever know folks like that, that uh, uh, they end up saying stuff, and they just, it seems like they're just talking just to hear themselves talk. Sometimes we believe that with Peter, that Peter was always the first one to come out the gate with something to say. Sometimes uh, some of the people who are the very best thinkers are some of those folks who are sitting in the background. But one thing I wanted to point out about this, uh, I wanted to go back for a quick second and speak about Moses and Elijah being alive, right? In Psalm chapter 6, verse 5. Psalm 6, verse 5. It says here, King David says, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Uh, again, understand that uh, this Sheol, this place, this kind of neverlandish type of place, uh, where it was a place where people went, it was a place where people basically almost stopped existing. So within the Jewish thinking, uh, the fact that uh, you, you are alive today, that one day that you're going to be somewhere and that's going to be pretty much, you'll be in the place of the dead. Uh, you're pretty much done. So the fact that uh, Peter, John, and James, that, that they saw Elijah and Moses living, that just the thought of seeing them ran contrary to their theology. 
Because they were thinking that maybe Elijah was dead, Moses was dead, they were in Sheol now, so there was no hope for them to come back amongst the living as they walk on this earth. So to see Moses and Elijah alive simply meant that uh, there is hope of the resurrection. So imagine if you would, if you are a Pharisee, if you are a scribe, and you're hearing this, this story going on, imagine how you would say to yourself, that can't be true, because we don't believe that. Going on. Doing anything that comes to mind is not an acceptable spiritual practice. Doing anything that comes to your mind is not an acceptable spiritual practice. Verse 33. Verse 33. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And now fully awake, the disciples want to set up these three tents, right? And we already discovered that. What exactly are these tents? No, they're not like the pop tents that we know, and they are not uh, those teepees. Basically, what this tent represented was the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. As a matter of fact, if you look into the Old Testament, you will discover that God commanded the children of Israel, as long as they stayed together as a nation, that one of the things they had to constantly commemorate was them coming out of, coming out of Egypt. And for some, even this day, today, in this year, that what they will do is they will live in tents for a period of time. I forget what that period of time is. They will do that. So what Peter was trying to accomplish is this. He wasn't trying to put up memorial for these three. He was trying to uh, prolong their stay here. I don't know, maybe he wanted to talk to them. I don't, I'm not sure uh, why he wanted to do it. It doesn't tell us exactly why he wanted to do it. But these shelters, these dwellings, these, some call them tabernacles, was the place that uh, the, the children of Israel came out of Egypt. And we saw that Jesus, he did basically asked, I mean, Peter did ask Jesus uh, for permission in order to make this happen. Do other spiritual ideas have equal standing with Jesus? We can safely say that Peter wanted to erect those tents, that it was not inspired by the Holy Spirit. You see that? See, what he wanted to do was not inspired by the Holy Spirit because uh, most of us, if we know this passage, we know that the answer to his question was, no, you can't do it. Peter's actions certainly imply that there was an equal standing between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. But no, a Jesus has no equal. But what about some, what some have done to erect tents for others whom they hold in high regard, but fail to recognize Jesus? Those who would fight for religious tolerance may go ahead and say, on the other hand, that let's make a tent for Jesus, but then let's also make a tent for Buddha. Let's make a tent for the God of Muhammad, to the God Hare Krishna, humanism, or any other God that they can possibly conjure up in their mind. The forces of tolerance of our day insist on equal standing. 
After being in a heavy sleep, our world is in a heavy sleep. And it comes up uh, with this idea, let us make tents to our own gods, our world says. But then God would tell us, according to Luke 9.33, not knowing what they are saying. Our world does not know what it's saying, or trying to place others on equal standing with Jesus Christ. While it may seem like the right decision now, it certainly will not pass muster in the long run. That quick glance of the spiritual has led many down the path to an unsustainable and undesirable position in eternity. Our next few verses bears this out. Verse, read again, verses 34 through 36. 34 again, please. As he was saying these things, a cloud came overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Heaven speaks clearly about the uniqueness of Jesus. This is one of those times when God does not delay in messaging back to people. Uh, you know what I mean. Sometimes you pray to God and you ask him to do this or to do that. It seems like God takes forever. But here, uh, Peter, he, he has an idea out of his sleep and he puts it forward and God answers right away. So I've seen Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus was not enough. God allows a cloud to overshadow them, causing fear on their part. And those three statements again, number one, it is, this is my son, my chosen one, and listen to him. So Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God who is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. This is a title that can't be earned, a title which can't be passed on to others. To accomplish all that God needed to accomplish for us, only God in the flesh was able to make this happen. Only God who is holy. Only God who is righteous. Only God who is just. Only God who is sinless can achieve this. My chosen one, my son. Jesus is God's chosen one, selected again above all others. There can't be other tents in your life. There can be no other Jesus. There may be a Jesus Garcia, but there are no more Jesus Christ, no more Jesus Christus, no more of the, there's only one. Jesus is the chosen one. And then finally, Jesus is the only one we must listen to. Jesus is the only one that we must listen to. Again, the banter is, is very heavy out here in this world. It is strong. Voices trying to draw us and pull us to the left and pull us to the right. 
saying, listen here. Uh, but here, uh, God says that we must not listen to those voices, but the one that we must listen to, we must listen to Jesus. Listen to him. So we would say together, absolutely Jesus. In a world absolutely full of defi de deficient voices, striving to draw us away from the truth of Jesus Christ. God says in this world, uh, which uh, is attempting to create its own gods, he says no, but he says that Jesus is his son. Jesus is his chosen one. And listen to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you again.